So I don't know how it is in your household with your spouse or your roommate or your mar- if you're married or if you're not married, maybe you've got roommates. But Christine and I, we kind of divide up the chores. So she has the chores that she does. I have the chores that I do. And one of my chores that I got fired from a couple years ago was making the bed. Apparently, I don't know if the pillows were not stacked right or the comforter wasn't perfectly flat. I didn't know this was a thing that you could get fired from. It was that big of a deal. But apparently, I didn't do a good enough job that I was no longer allowed to do it. Right? So you have my standard of making the bed. And then you have Christina's standard of making the bed. And then I go to my grandparents' house, and you have my grandmother's standard of making the bed. And it is an all-out process. And if you were to stay the night at her house and you were to leave the next day, you would have to change the bed sheets, which would take you approximately 15 minutes. And so I Googled, you know, like, is there a proper way to make a bed? Is there a proper method? And I found that there is actually a 10-step process that she actually follows to a T. Maybe she wrote the Wikipedia article. I don't know. But here's what they are. It says, number one, gather your bed linen. So no matter your standard of baking your bed, all of us got bed linen, so we're good there. But number two, things go off the rails. It says, iron your crinkly bed linen. I mean, come on. She does this. Not only that, she irons the pillowcases. She'll even iron the curtains if she feels like it. And so it's like perfect, like military style. Then it says, smooth out your mattress protector. Fine, that, that's fine. Tuck your fitted sheet tightly, which again, there's different levels of how good you are at tucking your fitted sheet. Hers is perfect. The, like, the lines in the corners are straight. There is not a crinkle in any of it. And then it says, uh, place your flat sheet evenly on the bed. The people have maybe have different standards of evenly. Her standard of evenly is like, perfect. Because then you have it, and then you have to tuck it under. Not, not just the bottom. The whole thing has to be tucked under. And then the next step, it says to take your flat sheet and optional blanket together. And so my grandmother, she has the fitted sheet. She has like the, the thin sheet. And then she has a blanket on top of that. Not the quilt, mind you, just the blanket. And so you have that, and then you have to tuck that in under the bed. It has to be perfect, all of it. And then it says, put your quilt cover on and lay it on the bed. And for her, it's not just, you don't just put the quilt on the bed. You also tuck that. So you have to tuck that perfectly. And then once you have all of that perfect, you then have to uh, peel back the top, like where the pillows are, like a foot or two, and those have to be folded over perfectly. So it has to be angled right. There can't be a crease in there. And then it says, cover your pillows and fluff them up. Okay, that's fine. Layer your pillows and cushions. Guys, this is where we often get in trouble because why do you have more than one pillow on the bed? I don't know, but apparently you do. And then it says, add a throw, comforter, or bed runner. And so for her process, it is a 15-minute, two-team thing to actually make the bed. And so in all of this, you have, again, you have different levels of bed-making abilities. You have mine, apparently, which is no good. You have Christina's. And then you have my grandmother's. Now, if you look at that, uh, technically, I guess, according to Google and how it's supposed to work, my grandmother's way of making the bed is the right way of making a bed. But who wants to actually do that? Like, is it, is it really is it really the right way to make a bed, like technically? But like, do we actually want to do that? And, and so I share that this morning because as we continue uh, through the gospel of Mark, I want us to consider this question as we read and are challenged by Jesus. And that's this. Uh, can your rightness lead you to be wrong? Is it possible to be so right about something or so correct about something that even though technically you are right, are you actually Right. Like, are you going about this rightness perhaps in the wrong manner? Can you be right about something and still actually be wrong? 
And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. We're on page 889. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, the last couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus be confronted by the Pharisees. Uh, He's clearly doing things differently. He's challenging people. People are kind of asking why Jesus, as a religious leader, isn't doing things the way other people are doing things. And, And last week, we saw how Jesus wasn't fasting and his followers weren't fasting the way other people would assume they're supposed to be publicly fasting. And he shows, he he talks about his presence being like a wedding feast. And what he's trying to say is that he is altogether different. He's altogether unlike anything that you and I have ever seen before. And so if we put him in these categories and try to make him act like the way we assume that he is supposed to act, we are going to completely miss out on what he's actually doing. And so verse 23, again, we're going to see this, another confrontation of the Pharisees. And is Jesus not acting the way we suspect he's actually supposed to be acting? And so chapter 2, verse 23, here's what it says. It says, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, us as modern readers, we are at a little bit of a disadvantage as we come to this text because we don't fully appreciate or maybe understand the gravity of the Sabbath and what it is and how everyone is actually supposed to follow it. Right? In fact, in, ancient, in the ancient cultures and Judaism today, but particularly in the ancient world, uh, they were marked by two things that set them apart from everyone else. Uh, one was circumcision as a sign of a covenant. It was a thing that they did that not everyone else did. And so people could look at them thinking that's kind of weird. And the second thing was the Sabbath. Right? People did not take off a day a week. And not only did the Jews take off a day a week, a day every single week, the same day, they wouldn't do any work, and they would also set a time, uh, time for worship. It was a big thing that made them completely distinct, that you would think that's kind of weird, but I clearly know who a Jew is because they take the Sabbath off. Uh, it's kind of like, I mean, it's elevated a lot, but even in our uh, culture today, even if you're not a Christian, you kind of know like Sunday is the day people go to church and that sort of thing. And so uh, we even look at Chick-fil-A being closed on Sunday. We're like, what's up with that? Right? Even Christians are just like, could you open at 1 p.m.? Like, I get you want to go to church, but how about you open, you know, at least in the evening, right? Even in a culture that gets that this is something people do, we still look at something like Chick-fil-A, like that is something that makes them distinct uh, compared to any fast food restaurant. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is not doing something the way that they would, or his disciples rather, are not doing something that everyone would assert, observe, uh, assume you were supposed to do. They are eating grain in a grain field. Now, what's the problem with that? Uh, well, uh, the problem with that is that it was considered uh, by some, it's not actually in the Hebrew Bible, but again, you would have various rabbinical literature and traditions that would interpret how to actually honor the Sabbath. And in fact, uh, there is one uh, literature that's called the Mishnah, and it's rabbinic literature about uh, Jews and Pharisees and religious leaders trying to interpret how to actually understand the law. And in the Mishnah, there is actually 39 classes of work that profane the Sabbath that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. So just to give you an idea of how important it was to observe the Sabbath, Uh, Some of the things were uh, you couldn't carry children. That was considered work. You're not supposed to work from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. Uh, Sweeping. You're only allowed to sweep a certain amount because if you swept too much, that then turns into work. Uh, You can't repair a fallen roof. Right, That's in there. So if a a roof falls down and you need to prop it up, that's fine. But you cannot fix it until Sabbath is um, over. Uh, You also uh, couldn't do things like uh, heal people. Or or put it this way, if, if a... 
If a building were to collapse, you were allowed to go through the rubble to see if there was any bodies in there. If they were alive, you could pull them out. But if they were dead and it was on the Sabbath, you were not supposed to take any bodies out until the Sabbath was over because it was considered work. The only thing you were allowed to do were things that were necessary or life-saving. So, for example, healing somebody or curing somebody, unless they're literally about to die, was considered work. Uh, so we have sources that talk about if you broke your bone on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to have it set until the Sabbath was over because the broken bone isn't going to kill you and, and setting it is work and you're not supposed to do work. And so you're not supposed to do anything that could be classified as work. And so the Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the grain field. The disciples are probably very hungry. They've been traveling around, uh, talking to people. They're probably pretty exhausted. And they begin to eat some of the heads of grain. Now, you were not supposed to reap or to plow in fields on the Sabbath because that was clearly work. Uh, plucking grain is not technically something that was wrong, but it was viewed as a sort of reaping. It was a viewed as a sort of work. And so therefore, it was in their minds, the religious leaders' minds, impermissible because they were actually working on the Sabbath. If Jesus is supposed to be a religious leader, well, clearly he is supposed to observe the Sabbath and they are not doing it. Now, the question for us, of course, as we read this text is, are they doing something that is actually wrong or are they doing something that people just kind of assumed was wrong? And there's a difference there, right? Like, so for example, uh, my childhood, there was a number of things that I was told that people just assumed were true, but were they actually true? So, for example, I grew up when Game Boys were a new thing, and it was where it was, if you played your Game Boy at dark, it was in the car, it was bad because you couldn't see it. And so you'd be near the window, and like you'd pause the game, and then when you get to a street lamp, you'd unpause it, and you'd play it, and then you'd pause it again, right? And what were you told if you tried to turn on the car light in the, in the, in the car that you were in? You were told it was illegal. That's what you were told, right? And so some of you are like, yeah, I was told it was illegal. So your parents told you, you cannot play Game Boy at night because you can't turn on the light in the car. Guess what? It ain't illegal. They lied to you, right? But we just kind of assume, well, they're right, and maybe it's because they just didn't want to turn on the car. But everyone said it was illegal. It was not illegal. Another thing I was told, if you were to eat, right? If you're eating and then you're at the beach or you're at a pool and you were told you need to sit for 30 minutes because you're going to get sick if you go swim right after you eat. Guess what? That ain't true. Right? Studies show that ain't true. Yes, if you're going to do some like high-intensity workout, you shouldn't do it right after you eat, but there's, you're not going to get sick as a kid eating lunch and swimming in the pool. Like That's not a thing that happens, but you just kind of assumed. Or, or one more, right? You were told that right, if you swallowed gum, it would be in there for three days, three months, three years, right? It would just be in there forever. And it was like, you were terrified that if I swallow too much gum, it's going to like get stuck and it's going to take my stomach out. I don't know what I was thinking, right? But that ain't true, right? It goes away just like anything else that you eat. And so you were told a lot of things and we're assuming they're true. And Jesus is going to challenge these religious leaders. Is it actually unlawful for the disciples to do what they're doing? And so here's how he responds at verse 25. It says this, he, so Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Uh, so Jesus here is referring to a story that you can read in 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David is on the run. And so at this point in Israel's history, they're in the land. Uh, king Saul is their first king. David has been appointed the heir apparent. But at this point, Saul is trying to kill him. And so Saul and his men are traveling around Israel trying to find David and trying to kill him. At this point, uh, David 
finds himself in Jerusalem, and he goes to the tabernacle. Now, inside the tabernacle are 12 loaves of bread. Uh, these loaves of bread were rotated out every so often, and the consecrated priests who had gone through all the rituals, they were allowed to eat the bread. And so when they took it out of the tabernacle, because the 12 loaves uh, represented the 12 tribes of Israel that God was always washing over, when they would take the old loaves out, the consecrated priests could eat them, only they could eat them, and they would put the new loaves in. And so David and his men, they're on the run, they're starving. David likely knows that there is bread here. And so he asks the priests if he could eat them, and the priest gives him the bread, even though technically it was not something he was supposed to do. And so in showing this and giving this example, Jesus is showing the religious leaders in us two things. Number one, that there is precedent in time of need where typical actions that are normally not allowed are actually permitted. Right? There are times where there are things where you and I maybe are not supposed to do, but because of our circumstances, it makes those things actually allowable. So again, going through a grain field, reaping, working is not actually supposed to happen. But what are you supposed to do if you're hungry? or you're starving, and it's the Sabbath. Are you actually not supposed to eat? Or is the Sabbath meant for something else? Is the Sabbath actually meant to be a blessing and life-giving? And is it possible that these people were viewing the Sabbath in the wrong lens? And so he's showing us that there are times where things that maybe you shouldn't typically do, based on the circumstances, it actually is permissible to do. And the second thing we see here is that this is the first of several occasions in the gospel of Mark where Jesus and, and, and where Mark compares Jesus with King David. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus, of course, is not only a descendant of King David, but he is of higher authority. That Jesus is the royal son of God that has been looking at, or the, the royal Messiah that has been anticipated since David has come. And so what Jesus is saying here is if it was permissible uh, for David and his followers in a time of need to eat, then certainly it's permissible of me and my followers because I am greater than David. And in fact, he explains this when he continues by saying this in verse 27. He says, then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Right? And what he's saying here is that people, at the end of the day, were not created for the purpose of following the Sabbath, as if the Sabbath and its rules and its regulations are somehow God. And you need to worship the Sabbath by following everything to a T and doing everything the way that the religious leaders want you to do it. Right? Instead, what he's saying here is that the Sabbath was instituted for people in order to bless us physically and spiritually. Right? It actually is supposed to be a life-giving thing, not something that you do that it actually can be detrimental to you. And of course, the question then becomes, who is Jesus to be able to tell these religious leaders how to actually accurately interpret and obey the Sabbath, right? Who is he to say what the Sabbath is, what, how you're supposed to obey it, and how they are viewing it the wrong way? Well, of course, in verse 28, he says this, so then the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath, right? What he is saying here is that me as the creator and Lord over everything means I actually also created and instituted the Sabbath. So let me tell you how you're actually supposed to follow it. Now, we won't go into it in great detail because we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the Son of Man is Jesus's primary uh, name for himself. And in the Old Testament, the Son of Man means one of two things. Uh, one, it is typically referred to simply a human being. And secondly, the Son of Man is someone that comes in a dream that Daniel writes about in Daniel chapter 7, where you have the Son of Man who is a divine figure living in, 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 living in the throne room of God, of which all of the creation will one day bow down and worship him. 
And so what Jesus is saying is he is that son of man that Daniel saw in that dream. And so who is he to tell people how they're actually supposed to observe the Sabbath? Well, he's actually God. In fact, verse 28 can also be rendered, who is the Lord over the Sabbath? The son of man is. What he's telling them is, here's why I'm telling you you're doing it wrong, and here's why I have authority, because I created it. In other words, what Jesus is saying, here's what they would have understood when Jesus is having this sort of authority over something that they consider to be so important. What is happening here is that Jesus is telling him that he is Lord over everything, right? Jesus is Lord over everything. They would have gotten this because the Sabbath was such a big deal. The only way you could tell people what to do on the Sabbath is if you actually created it. And so he's making a very obvious claim to them by saying, I get to tell you what it was actually meant for. Now, again, uh, this is a little hard for us because the Sabbath for us is often viewed as simply a day off. Uh, maybe you go to church, maybe you relax, but it's not viewed of, of all of these, you know, significance and maybe as much seriousness as it is for the Jews and certainly in ancient Israel. But maybe to make it more modern, it's like Jesus saying this, I am Lord over your family or your careers or your dreams. When Jesus is saying, I am Lord over the Sabbath to them, it's like him showing up and saying, I am over your dreams and your family and your passions. What you want or actually should be submitted to and are under me. Okay, you could kind of maybe uh, think of it like this. Like if you're applying for a job, there are a lot of factors that go into trying to find a job. Uh, pay, uh, location, uh, where you're going to live, uh, maybe if you're going to move for this job, what the schools are like, if you have kids. Like there's a, there's a lot of factors that you consider when you're trying to take a job. And imagine someone coming up to you and saying, that's great that you have your list of criteria. Here's my list of criteria that I want you to consider. You'd be like, what are you talking about? This is my job. This is my life. This is my family. Like, why would I take your list of criteria into consideration when I'm trying to live my life? This is what Jesus is saying here is that you have this expectation of what the Sabbath is supposed to be like. Let me show you how it's wrong and what it's actually meant for. And by doing this, here's what he's saying, that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, which means he is Lord over Everything. This was a radical claim for him to be making. And then he continues in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says next. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So this might be the same Sabbath day. This might be another day. We're not quite sure. Uh, but we do know this, that Jesus has already healed on the Sabbath once before. We've already seen this in Mark. And so, again, you have these religious leaders. I'm not sure how it all went down. I guess they knew Jesus was going to be there. Uh, if they're in the community, that they, know, they probably know the man with a disability goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so they know that Jesus is coming. And they're there to see if he is going to heal on the Sabbath again. Now, again, remember, Sabbath regulations can be overridden when it comes to life endangerment. Otherwise, it is considered work. So, for example, we have ancient texts that say if you broke a bone on the Sabbath, you are not allowed to have that bone set until the Sabbath is over, right? Because a broken bone isn't going to kill you. You're supposed to wait because setting a broken bone, if it's not for life endangerment, is considered work. And so this man has a shriveled hand. He's not going to die that day. So is Jesus going to, in their minds, violate the Sabbath by healing them? Now, look at the irony of what's going on here. It says that they were there in order to accuse him. In other words, these authorities are at the Sabbath uh, in order to see, in order, because they want to deny Jesus the right to do good while they conspired to do evil. Right? They're like, is he going to heal someone? Which, of course, we know is a good thing. And so they are using the Sabbath not only to not do good, but to try to trap Jesus and actually do evil. 
right? You see this and you're like, wow, like they're completely missing the point. Now, of course, that being said, it's very easy for us to see what's going on here, right? It's very, to see what's going wrong here is particularly for these religious leaders, right? Because we are not part of the culture. And so we are pretty objective third, third party uh, witnesses or observers to what's going on. And so we're not offended at all by what's happening. And so it can be really easy for us to look at these religious leaders and be like, how dare they? How can they miss what's going on? But of course, the problem for us is the same, that we should, as we read this, we should step back and ask ourselves, what are the cultural blindnesses or biases that we have that we just assume are right or good, but actually need to be challenged? Or maybe think of it this way, how often if we're being honest, do we let our self-righteousness lead to evil instead of good? Right? How often do we uh, think about somebody or think about people in this, may, in this vein, right? They shouldn't wear that. They shouldn't talk like that. They shouldn't watch that. They shouldn't go to that, right? And so we, in our own minds, set up to trap people. Maybe not to get them imprisoned or anything like that, but in our minds, we're like, we're going to see if this person does what I don't think they're supposed to do. And our posture is not to help and to care. Our posture is to judge and to demean, right? Think, think of it like this. Like, imagine you have a friend who blows it. Right? And instead of thinking to ourselves, how can I love them and be a friend? We're thinking, how can I judge them or look at them with disgust and make ourselves, make myself feel better because I am not like them? Now, of course, Jesus here is not doing actually anything wrong, but the principles still stand, right? The Pharisees are not there to ask Jesus questions. They're not there to try to figure out what's going on. They're simply there to accuse him. They're simply there to trap him. They don't actually care about Jesus. They care about trying to catch people, catch somebody doing something that they are not supposed to do. And so what we see happening here, particularly with what Jesus is going to do, is this reminder that being loving is greater than being right. Right? Being loving and doing the loving thing is greater and is more important than doing the right thing. Now, we like this in theory, but actually living this out can be hard and can be messy, right? We typically like really nice and neat categories of what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, so I know what I can do, what I'm supposed to do, and I know what other people are supposed to do, but this is really hard because this idea of love uh, can look different in different situations, right? Now, of course, love includes the truth, and it includes lovingly confronting people and maybe pointing them into a more life-giving situation, but it maybe does not always lead with that. So for example, like think of it in yourself, like in your own life, let's say you, you completely blow it. The first thing you want someone to say to you is not, you're so dumb, I can't believe you did that. Or the first thing you want a friend to say to you after you blew it is, hey, I love you and I'm still here, right? And we're so quick to, be, to give the truth and to judge other people, yet we want other people to love us. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging us. Instead of having this list of do's and don'ts and right and wrong, the question is not, how do I check a box, but how do I actually love? Because you can be right, but it doesn't actually mean you're being loving. Now, this is particularly true for me because I'm one of those people that is pretty black and white about thing, pretty, uh, things, pretty right and wrong, uh, and I like things to be accurate. And so this can get me into trouble uh, when Christine and I have been married for over 10 years, or so we've, we've grown a lot in this, particularly I've grown a lot in this. Uh, but for a while, when we would get in arguments, she would say to me, okay, Mr. Actually, Mr. Lawyer, trying to do all these right things, but she had a point, right? Because even like she was telling a story. Let's say she's telling a story to some friends and she's, and she's saying something that happened and she's explaining the details. And here I am correcting every single detail she gets wrong. If she says it was at night, I'm like, well, no, it was during the day. Or if she says we were driving my car, I'm like, no, actually we were driving the van, right? Or if she says this person was here and I'm like, actually, I'm like, these details have nothing to do with the story. They have nothing to do with anything that she's being said. But here I am correcting her at every turn, looking like a jerk, making, looking, 
making it look like she doesn't know what she's saying. Meanwhile, she's like, I am not giving a sworn testimony at a trial. I'm just telling a story, right? And technically, what I was doing was right. I was making sure the people that hear the story know all the correct details. But if you're sitting there, you'd be like, he is such a jerk. Like, why is he actually doing this, right? You can be right, but it doesn't mean you're actually loving. Or maybe put it this way, that doing the right thing the wrong way is still the wrong thing. You can do the right thing, and you can do it in the wrong manner, which means, at least according to Jesus in the New Testament, as we continue to read it, it means that you are actually doing the wrong thing. Now, the question is, how do I know if what I'm doing is loving or not? And on, this, and, and on one degree, I get it, because we, we want to maybe do the right thing, and so we, we want to do the loving thing. But I would also say this. You know. Like, if we're being honest, we often do know if what we're going to do is actually the loving thing. It's just that we might not actually want to do it. And so you can do the right thing, but if you do it the wrong way, what Jesus is going to show us here is not actually right. Like, it, it makes me think of when I was in college, maybe if you went to college, maybe you had, this was a similar experience to you, but we had these two campus preachers that would show up on campus, and they would say a lot of stuff. And some of the stuff they said was true, and it was right, and it was biblical, but the way they went about it was so wrong. They would condemn people that they don't even know. They're saying, here's where you're telling people where they're going to go when they die and what they're wearing and what their motivations are. I'm like, you don't even know these people. Like you can literally be yelling at a Christian who deeply loves Jesus, but because they walked by and they wore something that you didn't like, they're therefore going to hell and they're a terrible person, right? And it actually caused the witness of Christ on campus to be hindered because everybody saw these people and everybody made fun of them. And there's nothing wrong with telling people about Jesus, but the way that they were doing it was completely detrimental. They were doing the quote unquote right thing, right? They were telling people about the gospel, but the way they were going about it was wrong, and it was actually hurtful. Again, you can do the right thing, but if you do it the wrong way, we would see here that it's actually still the wrong thing, and Jesus is going to show us this, and so in verse, cha- in verse 3 of chapter 3, he then says this. It says, he told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? to save life or to kill, but they were silent. So he's asking these religious leaders, they assume what Jesus is going to do, and so he's asking them, what's the better thing to do on the Sabbath? Grant life or to hurt life or to kill life? Now, on top of that, uh, imagine the, uh, maybe the horror of this man, right? It's one thing to have a disability. You, you probably don't want to be called out for it. You might want to, uh, you know, you, don't, you want to live a pretty normal life, right? And imagine being told to stand up in front of everybody. And so this man is probably horrified. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't want to get in between Jesus and the religious leaders. But Jesus is using him to show something. And unlike the story we just read, where he talked about sometimes there are things that, to, there are things that maybe you shouldn't do that are permissible based on the situation, here Jesus seems to be saying that it is not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but it is actually right and necessary, right? If the Sabbath is meant to give life, then what better day to heal on the, the heal than actually on the Sabbath, because then people are actually fully experiencing the point of the Sabbath. Now, again, this is hard because for many people, even today, even for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not careful, religion is about following stipulations. Do this. Don't do that. Check this box. Make sure you avoid that. But it's not always necessarily about doing the right thing, right? It's about making sure that you're good, but not maybe actually doing the right thing. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, in our culture today, we have speed limits. Now, you may not like the speed limits. You might have, you get annoyed by them, but it's generally accepted. As long as you go less than nine miles over the speed limit, 
you're good, right? And again, you might get annoyed with it, but objectively, it reduces traffic, it reduces accidents. Have you ever been to a country that maybe doesn't enforce driving like it does in the United States, and you come back here, you're like, okay, I may not like the speed limit, but I'm glad that I'm here because I thought I was going to die when I went over there, right? And so you have this thing that we would all agree, generally speaking, you should follow the speed limit. Speeding is bad. Yet, imagine a situation where a parent, a mom and a dad, have a child who gets hurt. And if they don't get to the hospital fast enough, their child is going to be critically hampered for the rest of their life because of this injury. In that situation, all of us who would say, follow the speed limit, would also say, intentionally break the law. We would say, you better speed, and we would be fine with it. Right? In fact, I, read, I saw a video this week where this actually happened. Uh, a couple, their child was in the backseat. I don't know if he was choking or was having a seizure or something's going on. And so they're driving their SUV, and they are speeding to the hospital. And that cop, they speed past the cop. And so what does the cop do? Turns on their lights, pulls them over because they're speeding. As soon as they get pulled over, the dad jumps out of the SUV, starts running towards the police car, like yelling and pointing to his car to tell the police officer what's going on. And what does the police officer do? She tells them to get in the back of her squad car so that she can take them to the hospital. So in this situation, you've got people speeding. Wrong. You have a police officer who's supposed to write a speeding ticket so that people don't speed. Wrong. And yet we would all say they did the right thing. And what we're seeing here is that, again, again, in the Pharisees' mind, they're not careful. They're just saying, follow the speed limit no matter what. But there are times where the speed limit is good, but it's actually not the loving thing. Because you have a child that needs to get to the hospital. You get there as quick as you can. And so, again, what we see happening here is that Jesus, again, is not concerned with whether what people see him doing is considered lawful. Right? He's considered whether or not it's actually good. Now, of course, we know God's commands are good. And so Jesus is not about breaking the law and the tradition for the fun of it. Again, he actually perfectly upheld the law. He's just trying to show people what the law is actually for. In other words, you could put it this way, that you can do the right thing and not do the right thing. Right? That's another way. Like, you can actually do the right thing. Right? You can follow the speed limit. But if you've got a child in the back seat, the right thing to do is to get to the hospital as quick as you can. You can do the right thing and not do the right thing. Let me maybe give you a personal example that happened to me last month. Um, uh, I, had a, I had somebody who asked me if I could build them a coffee table. And it was one of those situations where, of course, I was happy to build a coffee table, but I needed to do it for free. And not just like build it for free, but I also needed to like buy the materials and just do all of it for free. And they didn't ask for that. They said they'd happy to, you know, they offered to pay for the materials for it. Um, but it was a situation where it needed to be like, it just, all of it needed to be free. And I knew that going into it. And they sent me the coffee table uh, that they wanted me to build them. And the materials for this coffee table were expensive. Like there was more expensive than some of the other ones that I have made. And so my first thought was, okay, how am I going to do this? Because for Christina and I, we have a personal budget and we have our, you know, budget, we have giving and generosity, all, all that sort of thing. And then we also have a line item where Christina has a line item and I have a line item in our budget that's called giving to others. So we can decide if we see a need that month that we can give something to somebody. Now, to be clear, it's not a lot. It's not that we're awesome. It's just important for the story. Uh, when this person asked me to make this coffee table, I said, happy to do it. Looked at my budget. I had already spent my giving to others that month, right? In my mind, I had already done the right thing. And so I'm sitting here justifying, okay, how do I get them to pay me the materials, which they want to do, like, how do I do this and be okay with it? In fact, I even went home that day and asked Christina, I said, here's the situation, here's the coffee table, they want me to make them. Is it okay for me to ask them to pay for that? And she looks at me, she said, no. Of course it's not okay, given the situation, that you ask them to pay for you. You see, again, in my mind, I did the right thing. We've got a budget, we followed it, I've already done something for somebody this month, I'm good. And in my mind, doing the right thing was stopping me from actually doing the right thing. 
I like to think of it this way. You remember those wristbands that said WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And, and it's kind of hard. It's like, I don't know what Jesus would do. Like, I'm not Jesus. And so this might be semantics, but it, one of the things that is helpful for me is that when I'm in a situation and I'm not quite sure what to do, to ask myself this, what would Jesus do if he were me? Right? So given as much as I know about Jesus and what I think he would do, what would he do in this situation? Well, here's what I know. When he was asked by this person to make them a free coffee table, in his mind, he would not have thought, let me check the budget to make sure it's in the budget. And if I've already spent my giving to others money, then how can I try to manipulate this to get them to, give, to pay for it without me feeling bad? That's not what he would have done. He would have said, I would be glad to make it for you. I'd have it by you this Sunday, not caring what it would have cost him. Right? In my mind, I did the right thing. And in me doing the right thing, I did not actually do the right thing. To my shame, it took me 24 hours to be like, Dylan, what are you doing? The right thing to do is to give him this coffee table and not care what it might cost. That's what Jesus is trying to show them. And then he says this in verse 5. It says, after looking around at them with anger. So Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, religious leaders, with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. So Jesus here is angry at the stubbornness and the hard-heartedness of these religious leaders. That they are more concerned with violating their traditional understanding of the law. Uh, and that, that it is causing them to miss the entire point of the law. Right? In the book of Matthew, Jesus is asked by a religious leader, which law is the most important? And what does Jesus say? That all of the law and the prophets can be summed up like this. Love God, love people. That's the point. And that's the point of the Sabbath, to encourage the loving God and to encourage loving people that they are so concerned with their traditional understanding of the law that they're missing what the law was actually instituted for. They're missing all of it. And then, of course, you have this disabled man. He also has a choice, right? He can refuse to do what Jesus said, which honestly would be easier. Like, as great as it is to be healed, this is his community that he has to deal with. These are the religious leaders that's going to cause some tension if he does this. So he has a choice. He could not do what Jesus says, or in faith, he can stretch out his hand and be healed. And, of course, that is what happens. He stretches out his hand, and Jesus heals them. And again, here's what we see Jesus do time and time again, even in the first three chapters of Mark. We see over and over again that Jesus is not concerned with what people think or what it may cost him. He does the good, the right, and the loving thing no matter what it costs. And as we're going to see in a second, there is a big cost. Now, when I say he doesn't care what people think, this is not the 21st century mindset. Like, oftentimes when we say, I don't care what people think, it's an excuse to be selfish and to do whatever you want to do. Right? That's typically, not always, but often that can be what it means. For Jesus, I don't care what people think means I'm going to do the right thing even if it costs me something, even if it hurts me something, and it's going to hurt him big. Here's what it says, the last verse we'll read, verse 6. It says, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Now again, we're talking about the Sabbath here. And on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are literally seeking out death. And yet they are mad at what Jesus did. I mean, you see that? They are literally trying to kill him, not just harm him, kill him. And they are mad at Jesus giving life to someone on the Sabbath. And on top of that, these Pharisees go and team up with the Herodians. Well, who are the Herodians? So Herod is the governor of, Ro of the Roman providence where Jerusalem and Israel is. And so it's not a perfect analogy, but you can kind of think of uh, the political system here in the United States. Uh, regardless of who's in office at the time, a Republican or Democrat, uh, you have people who are part of that party uh, that want to advance the administration's agenda. And so they're sympathetic towards it. They want to make 
make sure it happened. So the Herodians were a governmental group to enforce the law and to make sure what Herod wanted to have happened, happened. And so you have the Pharisees who up until this point are actually bitter uh, rivals to the Herodians because they don't like them. They don't like Rome. They want to follow the law. And yet here they are the instigators in this relationship to team up with their enemies to actually form an alliance and have Jesus killed. Right? The religious leaders don't like Jesus. The Herodians don't want a riot to break out or an insurrection to come up. And so they're on board because Jesus is gathering crowds everywhere he goes. And so as we read this text this morning, here's really what we need to remember. And here's what we can take away. When it comes to situations in life where we're not exactly sure what to do, here's what Jesus shows us. That love is always right. Love is always always right. Now, of course, there is some tension here because sometimes we don't know what we're supposed to do, right? Like what actually is the loving thing to do in a situation? Here's what I have found from personal experience. Love is often the first thing that comes to mind that you don't want to do, right? Because typically we're about our happiness and our joy and our comfort and our success. So number one, we're often thinking about us. And typically we know what the right thing to do is and we don't want to do it. So the first thing that comes to mind that you don't want to do is probably the loving thing to do in that situation. Again, what does Jesus say? That the greatest thing that you and I can do is to love God and to love people. Love, that dictates what is Right. And we see no better picture of this than the gospel and Jesus coming himself. That through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, you and I are invited into the kingdom of God. You want to talk about the right thing to do? People who turn their back on you, betray you, go their own way. The right thing to do is, okay, say, great, that's good. You are never welcome into my presence. And what does he do? He chooses love. He chooses love. He gives his life for us. He forgives us. He welcomes us in no matter who you are or where you've been or what you have been done to you. God chooses love for you. And his love actually dictates what is right. And so the encouragement for us, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, as we go out and live our lives to ask our question, not just what is the right thing to do that we can make ourselves feel good about, but what is the loving thing to do? What would Jesus do if he were me? Because love is always right, no matter what it costs. And that's what Jesus shows us in this passage. Let's pray.